Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. Today's sponsor is Alley Oop. We all know how important moms are for our kids, but did you know that one of the biggest influences on a girl's confidence and self-esteem is her dad? So if her dad says she's smart or fearless at sports or she can do anything she puts her mind to, she believes him, maybe more than her mom? I don't know. The praise and confidence a girl gets from her dad stays with her for life. There's a startup out of LA that is focused on just that. Started by a mom, it's called Alley Oop, and it provides a collection of fun challenges and activities that are specifically designed for a dad and daughter to do together as a team. There are no materials required, and you can access all the challenges virtually through the Alley Oop app, which you can download from the App Store. Just search for Alley Oop, A-L-L-E-Y-O-O-P. It's early access only right now, but if you use the code BOOKMOM, capital B for book, capital M for mom, BOOKMOM, all one word, upon sign-in, your favorite dads and daughters can check it out for free. I had such a nice talk with author Mia Birdsong via Skype. She is the author of How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. She's also going to be a part of my book club on June 23rd. If this is aired by then, I'm not sure. Anyway, Mia will be my guest then, so sign up at Zippy's Virtual Book Club. Mia is a pathfinder, community curator, and a storyteller who steadily engages the leadership and wisdom of people experiencing injustice to chart new visions of American life. In her work on guaranteed income as senior fellow of the Economic Security Project, she tapped into the voices and visions of low-income people to reimagine the American social contract, which she talked about in her TED Talk. Mia was an inaugural Ascend Fellow and faculty member with the Aspen Institute, a New America California Fellow, an advocate in residence with the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and practiced. She's been published widely and speaks at conferences and universities across the country. A graduate of Oberlin College, she loves to garden, keeps bees and chickens, studies herbalism, and occasionally practices archery. She currently lives with her family in the Bay Area. Welcome, Mia. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's like so ironic how we show up, and here we are. You showed up for our interview, so we're off on the right (laughs) foot. (laughs) Hopefully. Can you please tell listeners what your book is about and what inspired you to write it? Oh, that was a great question. So it's about a few things, but fundamentally, it is a book about all the questions that I had about belonging and interdependence and being in expansive, inclusive, beautiful, caring community. I feel like I grew up with some really amazing examples of how to do that, but felt like as I became more successful, and I'm, that's in air quotes, right? (laughs) Like success as kind of defined by the American dream. As I became more successful, I became, it became harder for me to actually be in the kind of family and community and kind of friendships that I wanted. The American dream standard for us kind of defines, you know, defines nuclear families, isolated nuclear families as a model for us to all kind of achieve. 
And so much of what is touted as successful has to do with independence and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And, you know, I knew that all of those things were nonsense, right? <laughs> like we are not, we are not independent. We are deeply interdependent. And when we try to achieve interdependence, we're actually cutting ourselves off from something that is like fundamental about what it means to be a human being. So I found myself kind of in this in this weird kind of middle space where the closer I got to, you know, again, what is defined as as success by the American dream, the harder it was for me to stay deeply connected to people and to feel like I was experiencing the kind of interdependence and mutuality that I wanted. So I wrote the book that I needed to read. <laughs> That's the secret to it all. <laughs> I feel like that's that's the where all the best books in the world come from. Totally. And you were so it was so interesting in your introduction how you are such a frequent speaker and you go to companies and talk all over and you know I saw your TED talk which was mm -hmm. amazing but that like people would quietly corner you and say all these secret things yeah. and the one man who like made everybody leave so he could talk to you longer totally. about it. Tell so, me about what people really wanted to know from you and and what that how that eventually made you rethink things. Yeah. So my work for the last 20 years has been around social justice. And one of the things that I focused on specifically around economic justice was really shifting our understanding of why people experience economic injustice. So why people are poor, you know, the stereotype that is that people are lazy or they don't know how to like budget or whatever. And that's not true. <laughs> people are poor because they don't have money. The problem is actually wealth hoarding. But one of the things I, I would do is, is, is tell stories about the creativity and innovation that I saw in partnering with low-income families. And largely that was looking at the ways in which people really kind of collectively worked to mitigate their experience of being poor. So the stories I was telling were about how people practice this really deep interdependence and mutuality. So yeah, so I would be, you know, I would talk, I did my TED talk, I would talk to people at foundations, I would talk to people at think tanks, I would, you know, I went around talking about this. And like, you know, people come up to you after you give a talk and they have more questions. And for a long time, and I was only vaguely aware of this for a while, like part of what would happen is that there would be this like white man, usually, kind of staying back as people were coming up and asking me questions. And they would kind of wait for people to leave and finish. And often like, you know, somebody would be like, go ahead. And they would they would like shake their head and allow. And I was like, oh, they're being really like deferential and polite. <laughs> and then what they would say to me is, you know, they would thank me for the talk. And then they would kind of confess that they didn't have that kind of connection and community in their lives. And for a long time, I just was like, you know, I kind of was like, oh, that's too bad. Like, <laughs> sucks to be you and kind of went about my business. And then at this one talk, this young man, he's probably in his like mid thirties. He did that exact thing. He waited for everybody to go. He came and he confessed to me about not having community. And then he asked me like, well, what do I do? Like, how do I do that? And I gave him some like pat answers about, you know, introduce yourself to your neighbors. And I don't know, just like things that are, weren't like wrong, but like, really, I just didn't actually know. I didn't know what he should do. And, I, and it was because I didn't really know what I needed to do. So that question, like it stuck with me that he, I gave him these answers that were really not 
thoughtful or, you know, really accurate. And it just, it really stuck with me for a while. And I was like, well, what should I have said to him? And like, what is the advice that I need to give myself? And I realized I didn't know. And then I was like, okay, so where do I figure this out? And, and it became very obvious to me. I was like, oh, of course, the answers are always in the places where people are excluded from practicing the American dream, right? It's the places. And I feel like continually, whenever I'm looking for answers for issues we face or how to be a person in the world, it is in the places where people have not been successful at what America defines success as because that definition of success is so toxic and is like fundamentally racist and sexist and classist. So the communities where I have seen the most powerful and inclusive and beautiful and caring examples of family and friendship and community are with, you know, like in my own Black community, among queer people, among unpartnered parents, among unhoused people. So those were the people who I went to as the experts for this book. And they did not disappoint. Like, like I feel like I, I was transformed by like talking with them. And because so many of these people were in some way connected to me, right? Some of the, like a lot of the folks in the book are my friends. I was like, our relationships were transformed just by like having those conversations. I feel like sometimes just having a conversation and finding out what's deeply on people's minds changes things forever, no matter what. (laughs) But certainly when you talk about really things that are so essential to what people are thinking and feeling, like their sense of community and belonging and, you know, which of course contributes to overall happiness. So anyway, (laughs) I'm not surprised to hear that. You know, I was really interested in your sort of definition of the American family and how that keeps shifting over time and how that Mm -hmm. fits into things and your own story, how you were prepared to adopt a child or a foster child. And sorry, (laughs) I I like, I'm so interested in the personal, but you were going to adopt a child and you're all hell bent on that. And then as you were in the middle of it, your husband came along and you met him and yes. he like derailed all your plans. Totally. Um, so t- t- just tell me a little more about that and uh, how you ended up with a family you never thought you would have, like a, t- you know, not typical. Yeah, but a, you know, so, anyway. so I was, so I was raised by uh, uh, my mom. Um, I had totally had a relationship with my father, but my mom was the person, the like day-to-day person. And um, she was also raised by her mother and then, her mother died when she was fairly young, like a tween. And then she was raised by her grandmother and then her grandmother died and then she was raised by her aunt. So there's definitely lineage of kind of like women um, raising the women in my family. So for a long time, I was quite sure I was never going to have children. It was not interesting to me. I did not like children. Truth be told, I still don't like children like as a demographic. (laughs) I like my own kids. They're awesome. But like, I don't just inherently kind of like dig kids. So that was nothing I wanted to do. And then when I was 27, I vividly remember this, I woke up and I was looking up at the ceiling and it was like a switch went off in my like uterus. And I was very clear that I was going to be a mother. And it didn't occur to me that I would do that with somebody else. I think partly because I had a model for that, but also because I am like very much an only child. And the idea of having to make parenting decisions with another person was like, I was like, I do not want to do that. (laughs) So I had this whole elaborate fantasy of adopting 
like little pack of black girls and homeschooling them. And then, and I I was going to change my last name to amazing. And they I was going to unleash them upon some like, you know, high school at some point. And they would be those damn amazing kids because I would have raised these like little revolutionaries. Never mind like that. I don't like the idea of homeschooling my children now that I have actually had to like do some of that is awful. <laughs> and I was and I, like how I would afford to raise a bunch of kids and homeschool them and obviously not be able to work like that was not part of the picture. But I just had this fantasy. And then the the reality part of it was was I decided I was like, OK, I am going to like I do want to become a parent and sperm costs money. <laughs> but children, you know, there are there are because of again, systemic racism, there are a lot of free black kids, kids whose whose parents have been, who've been taken away from their parents because of white supremacy and the prison and policing system. And I was like, well, let me adopt a black kid who's like, whose parents have been, you know, their, their relationship has been severed. And I actually had to do a lot of research about and think about whether or not I wanted to contribute to a system that was taking children away from its parents. And I talked to women I know, lawyers I know who work with women in prison and just, and they were just like, you know, the women I know would rather have their kid in your home, in your homes, like me specifically, knowing that I would absolutely make an effort to maintain their relationship with their kid and then have their kid like in, you know, a foster home or in like an institution. So I feel like I I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah, so I had this whole plan. I was going to adopt a kid and had like, you know, called agencies and was filling out paperwork and scheduling like there are all these classes that you have to take. And so I was scheduling those. And then I met Nino. I knew within like three days of meeting him that I was going to marry him and we were going to have a family. Like we're going to have kids. And so part of me was like, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) My timeline is all messed up. Like I had, you know, put all these things in motion, but I was also like completely in love with him. So I was like, all right. So, uh, you know, so now I have, you know, we're married. We've been married since we've been married for like 15, 16 years. We've been together for almost 20 years. We have two biological children. You know, I ostensibly have the nuclear family. But neither of us grew up with that kind of family as a model, right? I had my single mom. He was in this, like, amazing community of, like, you know, hippies who he basically had, like, multiple parents and a whole slew of, like, siblings. And they would just, like, run around in the Central Valley and, like, the rural Central Valley together barefoot and they were all like homeschooled at this like collective school. So neither of us had the experience of the kind of like insular nuclear family. But I will tell you, even though that was not the model we have, like we have to be really vigilant to not kind of sequester ourselves. It is like there is so much built into our cultural norms and the design of our lives and the benefits that exist that really support insular nuclear families in this way that like we just have to be really vigilant to not let our family become isolated. And I will say like it's particularly hard right now because of course we're just like all in the house together. But what it's meant for me is really clarifying for myself like what are the roles of the people in my life, right? Like there there are certain things that I get from my husband, but there are lots of other things that I get from other people. And you know, part of what is challenging about marriage is that we are the story we are told about it is that like 
you know, you're going to meet somebody who is your other half, right? So you already start out as like half of a person. And that person is then going to be like your everything. They're going to be, you know, the person who you're attracted to and have sex with. They're going to be your best friend. They're going to be your roommate. They're going to be the person you manage, you know, a household and finances with. If you have kids, they're going to be your co-parent. They're going to be your travel buddy. They're going to like all, they're going to be your confidant. Like all of these things are supposed to come from this one person. And it is, I mean, I'm sure there's some like, you know, there are a few people who are able to like have all of their needs fulfilled well mutually by each other. But like that is not, like that's mostly not what happens. And I think a lot of people end up in marriages like trying to change the marriage to fit into that idea as opposed to being like, okay, what are we actually good at for each other? Like, how do we be in this thing together and fulfill the roles we actually can fulfill and then like get our other needs met elsewhere? You know, we started out in without really thinking through all of that. So a lot of our stuff is just intertwined. And like, you know, I am a terrible roommate, for example. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know, we live in the Bay Area. Housing is expensive. Like we can't not live together. But that, you know, if we thought about it, that potentially would be a role we would not actually share with each other because I'm not a good roommate. I'm messy and I take too long to clean things up. So part of like how I think about family for myself is is to try to continually just like re-examine what my assumptions are about what family should be. So my kids have, we have lots of chosen family. They have like deep relationships with other adults that are not us and that they're not biologically related to. We also just have a lot of people just holding us and, you know, considering us. And we do the same for the other folks in our lives. And you you wrote about in your book this fantastic welcoming system, which you posted on Instagram as well, where you have friends come over and you have like, it's essentially an open house where you're like, come on over, I'm not setting up, you're going to help me set the plates and then we're all going to clean up and you're going to leave and it's going to be, you know, I'm going to like kick everybody else out of the house and get my fill of that girl time or the bonding. And when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this woman. Like, this is my dream (laughs) that I would be able to do this and pull this off every week. Like, I love that. I just loved it. Well, I have, I feel, I have like a multitude of, and again, these are, these have been adapted now that we're, nobody's allowed in my house, but I have this multitude of ways in which I get to gather with the people who I love. So I have two women's groups, one of which either there's one called Black Women's Freedom Circle and the woman who I started it with, Amaka, she, they, we either meet, we would meet at my house or at her house. And then I have another women's group started by my friend, Courtney Martin, and we, she lives in co-housing. So they have like a common area and we always meet at her house in that, in that space. And both of those pre-COVID were meeting once a month. Now they are both meeting virtually twice a month because we we all are feeling like the need to really connect with each other. And I think especially because we actually have established these relationships where we are doing a lot of examining of our lives and like processing of things. It actually is like the perfect venue for us to be dealing with both kind of the global pandemic and this most recent cycle of white violence. So I have those. And then the other thing that I started because I kind of liked, it's called drop by dinner. And I kind of liked the idea that my friends would just like come by and we would, you know, chat and have tea or whatever. 
But then I actually really hated the idea that people would show up like unannounced to my house. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I kind of want that, but I really do not. So I was like, oh, I just need to create a container around it. Like I need to have like a day or an evening, right, that people are allowed to do that. So I created this thing called Drop By Dinner. I was very specific about who was invited because it was not for all of my friends. It really was for people who I felt like I was like, because I don't want to, I didn't want to, I was like a cleanup for it. I wasn't going to actually like prepare a meal. It really was people, I was like, here's when I'm going to be home. I will be making something for my children and you're welcome to whatever that is, but like also bring something because if a whole bunch of y'all show up, I can't make grilled cheese for everybody. So I invited people to come by. I was really clear that, you know, like I said, I, I might I was not going to clean my house. I might be wearing my pajamas. I don't know what kind of mood I'm going to be in. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to prepare myself for hosting. That was part of the point is to not be, have the pressure of hosting. And I was like, you can tell me you're coming over if you want, or you can just show up. You can tell me you're coming over and not show up and not tell me that you're not going to show up. Like there's no expectation around like RSVPs because not a party. And, and I was clear, I was, and I was also like, you can't bring anybody. Like you can't, I don't want to like, this is not for your spouse. This is not for your best friend. This is not for your Tinder date, except for kids. I was like, I don't want you to not be able to come because you can't bring kids. And then the other thing was, I was like, you know, if you come to my house, do not leave my house messier than it was when you got here. And if I resist you cleaning up, tell me to be quiet and just like take care of things. So I, I will send it, you know, what I would do is I would send an email out to this group of people like a day in advance, a week in advance, depending on, you know, what I felt like I could, I could commit to. And it was amazing. Sometimes like 15 people would show up. Sometimes three people would show up. Everybody cleaned up after themselves. And the, the conversations that we were able to have and the way in which like my, you know, my different worlds kind of collided in that space was so extraordinary for me. And it really like challenged me to, you know, the idea, like theoretically having people show up at your house when you don't clean it and like you're wearing your pajamas is like, I was like, I like this idea, but it also made me uncomfortable. And part of what I wanted was to really push myself so that I could let the people in my life see me. It was really about creating some space for like authenticity and vulnerability where I wasn't trying to perform some version of myself. And that for me was one of the most powerful things is that like people actually got to see like my house a mess and me like, you know, sometimes in a crappy mood because of whatever had happened in my day. I wasn't trying to pretend that I was okay if I wasn't okay. And I think that like, especially right now, again, in the COVID era has also, it's a blessing that I was able to practice that because I feel like so much of, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't ask people like, I don't say, how are you? Um, and expect that people are going to just say fine or good. Like I'm genuinely, I'm like, how are you actually right now? I'm like what's going on for you? Because I feel like none of us are really okay. So having practiced that feels like, I'm, I'm just glad I got a little practice in before COVID descended on us. Yeah. I mean, I guess I say, how are you? But I don't really expect, then I ask my next question, which is like the real question. You know, we got to get the yeah. pleasantries out of the way. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, come here. Let's see. Let's, let's chat. Yes. So what made you, you are so accomplished and you've like talked to so many people and you have so many thoughts and ideas and the interviews and everything. Like what made you want to turn this into a book? Like why did, when did you get the idea and say like, I want to sit down and write this book. I want to do all these interviews. How did it become a book? Like totally real. I had not really, like an editor approached me 
and was said, do you have a book in you? And I was like, I have like 12 books in me. (laughs) We met up and she just asked me really thoughtful questions. And it helped me understand that there was this thing that I was trying to home in on, right? This like stuff I'd been thinking about and trying to understand for myself. And she kind of helped me bring those questions to the forefront and which is like, you know, what a good editor does and really helped me understand what it was that I wanted to ask and what it was that I was curious about and what it was I wanted to figure out. And I feel like that's, that's the honest answer. I feel like it's kind of unsatisfying. Not at all. Why is that unsatisfying? Uh, I think it's because I wasn't like, I wasn't like struck. I, I don't know that I would have or I don't, I don't know that I'm not convinced I would have actually t- written a book if an editor hadn't said, asked me, like, do you have a book in you? And now I'm clear. I'm like, oh, I, I'm, I'm like, I have several other books. Cause of course, while I was working on this book, I thought of all the other books that I want to write because that's what happens. So now I'm clear about that. Like I have clarity about some other books that I want to write, but this first one was really something that I feel like she helped pull out of me. I think that's great. I think okay, <laughs> it was like the universe speaking to you. The book was going to come true. out one way or another. That's just the way true. it came out. And it sounds like you really enjoyed it now that you have this long list yeah. of other ones. Too. I mean, it was also terrible. Let me be clear. Okay. <laughs> really, really, it's a lot of words. It is very challenging. You know, I asked, because this is what I do. I was like, I was like, let me not figure out how to, I mean, I Googled like how to write a, how to write your first book, <laughs> but I know lots of authors also. So I asked all of them, right? So I got two different approaches to, to writing books. One was the people who like the insufferable people, let's admit it. They, you know, they get up at like five in the morning and they sit for like three hours straight and they write and then they take a break to like, you know, do calisthenics or something. And then they come <laughs> back and they edit what they've written and they just like do that, you know, every day. And then they have a book, right? So there's those people. And then they were the people who I thought were my people, right? Because this is what they said. They were like, oh no, you like deliberate on it and you think about it and you talk to people about it. And then you sit down like the month before your deadline and you write for like 12 hours and you crank out a book. And I was like, oh, okay. Because a friend of mine was like, well, how do you usually do things, Mia? And I was like, at the last minute. And she's like, well, that's how you're going to write your book. So I discovered <laughs> that I do do things at the last minute, but I also cannot really, cons- like for more than like a couple days, I cannot sit for 12 hours and write. Writing for me was very much like, I would sit for 20 minutes and then I could feel that that like, it was like the words were coming out. And then as soon as I started to write garbage, I was like, oh, it needs to like simmer some or like percolate in some way. And then I would go and like fold laundry or get on social media or, you know, go down various rabbit holes. I would go, you know, water the tomatoes, just do something else. And then I would come back to it and and like whatever it was had like cooked and then like more good words would come out. So I feel like I just like so much of people would ask me, how's the writing going? And I'm like, I'm not writing a book, I'm making a book, but like, 80% of the time is actually, for me, was not writing. It was talking to other people about it. It was thinking. It was doing completely unrelated things so that whatever happens in my brain would, like, work on it, and then I would be able to, like, make words happen. So now I know that. (laughs) My process is last minute and very slow and largely not writing. Well, I think that's what's so interesting is that everybody approaches it so differently and not, you know, just because you're not waking up at five in the morning to write doesn't make your process any better or worse. You know? Yeah, my process is great. It's yeah. one that works for me. Now I know that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
<laughs> and so what's coming next? Did you figure out what your next book is going to be? Or you're just sort of like, I mean, I know that now is such a crazy time. What's coming next? That is a great question. Well, one of the things I'm working on right now, because, you know, this book is not a how-to book. It's not like a guide. It's like a, a vaguely sketched out map. <laughs> it is a like a compass. So one of the things I'm working on right now with some folks that I love to collaborate with is a guided journal for the book. Mm, so that smart. folks who want a way to kind of put into practice Something, some of the things that they see in the book or to like ask themselves the kinds of questions that will help them figure out how they want to examine and create family and friendship and community in their own lives. So, I mean, that's, that's a, like, I mean, I'm hoping I'm finished in like a month or so. Um, and it'll just be online. I'll be free. Um, so that folks who read the book can like reference that and like, you know, and I'm trying to make it as, you know, it's not a thing you have to go through from start to finish. You can kind of like pick the things that work for you. But that's been really fun to think about like, what are the, what are the things that will elicit some new thinking and, and then like actionable things for folks. So I'm working on that. What else am I working on? I'm working on my garden. That feels really like literally and, and like figuratively grounding right now when shelter in place, right before actually shelter in place happened, I was, I'm a little, I'm not a prepper, but I definitely think about the apocalypse quite a bit and want to, and like think about how I'd be prepared for it. So I totally put in a whole bunch of food because I was like, I don't know what's going to happen to our food system in a few months. So we have like tons of kale and collard greens and all kinds of other greens that we're eating from. We also have chicken, so there's lots of eggs. So I feel like solid. And I'm also just thinking about like, what are the things that I learned from the book? Like I'm learning more as I talk to people about it. So part of what I feel like I'm doing is actually like deepening the practices that I have been working on since doing the research for the book. Um, as far as like next actual projects though, I don't know. <laughs> not, not sure yet. That's totally fine. Um, do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Oh, I'm trying to, I'm like, what's the advice that, that no one, like other people don't say? I do think, especially because this was my first book, like like writing a book is hard, but also figuring out how you write a book is hard. So I think like, I think it's great to ask other people how they wrote their books, but I feel like there is a way in which I had to really do some like self-examination to understand how my creative process works. And it wasn't what anybody told me. It really was like my own thing. And then I think it was about, and I think especially for folks who, you know, I don't think of like what we call procrastination as a bad thing. I feel like the way that my creative process works is actually antithetical to the culture of capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy. And I think most people's creative process could use extracting those, like extracting those things out of their process so that they're allowed to kind of like move at their own pace. And I think one of the big challenges for folks who are trying to create things is we often, there's a timetable, right? There's like, there's a deadline. There's a way in which we're, we're trying to force our creative process into a box that is usually too fast. So I think a lot of what felt important to me was to actually figure out what the pace of my creative process is. And to like, you know, be mindful when I'm like, I'm like, when am I actually avoiding stuff or, you know, being sucked into Twitter, right? Versus 
when am I, when am I pausing from the actual writing of it to do something that feels like it's allowing, you know, like I said, my brain and my spirit and like whatever to percolate and to deliver through writing in this case, whatever it was that I'm supposed to be saying. So I feel like we actually need to be much more patient and gentle with ourselves around our creative processes. Excellent. Well, Mia, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and the story behind the story and all the rest of it. So thanks for coming on my show. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks to today's sponsor, Ali Oop, A-L-L-E-Y-O-O-P. Check it out at the App Store and start bonding with dads and daughters right away for free with code BOOKMOM, B-O-O-K, capital B, M-O-M, capital M, if that makes sense, BOOKMOM. <laughs> Thanks for checking it out. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.